I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. We've heard many stories of cursed lands. Usually it's surrounding a colonizer building on indigenous American land who has then dealt a nasty curse. Think poltergeist. But cursed land stories only continue the misconceptions surrounding what are perceived as mysterious cultures, like indigenous Americans or gypsies. So if a piece of land isn't cursed, can it still harbor evil? Can a location continually be a draw for those that wish others harm? Today I'll be telling the stories of Barbara Tucker, Jennifer Titcher, Mindy Thomas, Leela Moeller, Stephanie Russell, and Alexandria Eisen, connecting a serial killer to bodies that have been found on or around a community college in Gresham, Oregon. Sometimes cases take turns we don't expect. The first case I talk about today I've had on my list since we started the show. I'll cover the cases of the bodies found at Mount Hood campus as a back-to-school theme I planned to myself. Then, as I got deeper and deeper into those cases, things took a turn, and the next thing I knew, I was researching a serial killer. So join me as we dive headfirst into the rabbit hole that is Mount Hood Community College and the Forest Park Strangler. After completing my primary education, but before spending another 13 years in classrooms, I took a detour and did some time at Mount Hood Community College. Personally, I was never really excited about college. I kind of thought it was a scam. Still do, actually. And with universities and state colleges making it seem like the only real college education was a more expensive one, I felt a sense of embarrassment that I had landed on attending classes at Mount Hood Community College, a place Emily and I know well. In fact, it's where we started our friendship nearly 20 years ago, all thanks to Mount Hood's worldwide famous jazz program. Give us a scat, M. Scooby-dooby-dooby-doop-bop. Award-winning. I know. I was lead of the scat. <laughs> Still are. Yep. Hey yo. I mean like poop. I picked up on that. Oh. For anyone that might not know the difference, a community college is a great way to get your associate's degree, a two-year degree, or to start your path towards a bachelor's degree or higher by taking the same courses but for a lower cost. Because of that lower cost, they are often seen as not being legitimate schools. But sorry, if I can get the same education for cheaper, I don't care how it's perceived. Bring on the grocery outlet of educational facilities. All of my credits transferred to Oregon State. Which is so awesome. Because it was so much cheaper and we had so much fun. Fun fact, Paul Wenner, the creator of The Garden Burger, multiple award-nominated and winning jazz performers, filmmakers, and artists, Lindsay Wagner, the bionic woman, and Joel David Moore, the long-faced guy from Avatar, not to mention your two favorite podcast hosts. Uh, and Kenny G. <gasps> what? Yeah. He wasn't on the list. He was in the jazz band. Oh, my God. And Kenny G are just some of the notable attendees that have come out of Mount Hood Community College. What? <laughs> Mount Hood Community College, or MHCC, opened its campus doors in 1966. Located about 15 miles from the heart of Portland, its Gresham location provides the perfect backdrop for students that maybe want to live at home to save money while attending classes or move into one of the many surrounding apartment complexes for their first taste of independence. The campus is surrounded by Kane Road, which is also known as 257th or 257 blocks away from the Willamette River, and that's on the west side. 
Stark Street, a main thoroughfare for the entire metro area to the north, Troutdale Road to the east, and the Death Road to the south. I literally had to Google that the name of the street is Northeast 17th Drive. It's a windy hill with the best view of Mount Hood and dangerous curves that I maybe take a little too quickly sometimes. Yes, I have been in a car accident on this road. No, it wasn't on the windy part. While MHCC seems to be out in the boonies, it's got a lot going on around it. In addition to all of the student-friendly apartments, within the surrounding blocks are a movie theater, grocery store, shopping plaza, gas stations, fast food, restaurants, and most importantly, a Dairy Queen. Besides the suburban bustle surrounding the school, there are multiple buildings, trails, wooded areas, and creeks on the 212-acre campus for its annual 30,000-student body to enjoy. However, in 1980, the area surrounding the campus wasn't as developed, and the wooded area surrounding the local waterway, Beaver Creek, has experienced some dark history. In 2009, a body was discovered on the Beaver Creek Trail in those woods. Working on a road was a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers member who discovered a male who was unresponsive. Calling in the discovery, an autopsy was eventually conducted, which surprisingly showed no cause of death. However, 39-year-old Eugene native Michael Charles Porter was houseless and had been exposed to the elements of that November night, presumably causing his death. Nearly 30 years before that, a hideous crime was committed, even witnessed, and it took until just a few weeks ago to find answers. Barbara Tucker was a sophomore at Mount Hood in 1980. Two years earlier, she had graduated from Cleveland High School, where she excelled at basketball. Having an interest in pursuing a business degree, she started her career-focused education in high school, volunteering with the Distributive Education Club of America, a.k.a. DECA. For those that loved Barbara, it wasn't surprising the free-spirited, strong-willed, hard-working teen was focused on learning and growing. At 5'11", it was a bit ironic she was known as the baby of the family, the youngest of seven children to parents Albert and Louise. After graduating high school, Barbara made her way to MHCC to start her business degree. She even got her own place, living just across the street from the school at the East Wind Apartments. Part of her schooling involved taking business classes in the evening. On that cold January 15th, Barbara had called her mother to give her an update of how she was doing and what she had planned for the day ahead. Hoping her class might get out early, Barbara told her mother she would be going to a friend's apartment for an ice cream treat if it wasn't too late by the time she was out. Barbara would never make it to her friends. Walking to class on one of the many tree-covered footpaths, Barbara encountered someone, who then struck her in the head with a blunt object. A violent attack started to take place, but Barbara was tenacious and she was able to get away from the culprit. Escaping through the bushes, she managed to get herself to Kane, or 257th. With blood and mud on her face, she frantically began waving at passing traffic. Witnesses would later tell police they saw the young woman, and being at a college campus, they thought her crawling in the street, to the point that cars had to swerve, one even coming very close to hitting her, was all part of a college prank. Oh my god. None of those witnesses stopped to make sure that they were witnessing a joke. No one asked Barbara if her cries for help were real or not. Even when witnesses reported they saw a young white male come out of the same wooded area, grab Barbara by her arms, and drag her back into the woods, they still didn't check on her, call for help, or do anything. Just one more, one more reason to intervene even if you think it's a joke. Or just call, you know? Yeah. Hey, 911, I don't know if this is anything, but it might be. It might be. Terrible. 
The next morning, a student walking to class discovered Barbara's partially dressed body in some bushes. She had been raped and met her end via a succession of violent blows to the head, an ugly and terrifying end to what had been such a beautiful life. Soon after the murder, police were able to release a sketch of the suspect based on witness accounts. There wasn't much to be gained from it. It was a young white man, clean-shaven, wearing a ski cap and jacket. But that sketch and all witnesses led nowhere. Due to the sexual assault, there was DNA evidence, which was saved, but of no use as the technology to test it had not yet been developed. But that sketch and all witnesses led nowhere. Due to the sexual assault, there was DNA evidence which was saved but of no use as the technology to test it had not yet been developed. So out of desperation, police had one of the witnesses speak to a hypnotist. After doing so, they felt they had a better, more detailed description of the killer. The witness shared they believed the suspect was in his early 20s, had dark eyebrows, brown hair, high cheekbones, and an olive complexion. He was about six feet tall with a stocky build and a swagger in his step. His ski parka was navy blue paired with gray pants and a rounded ski cap. But even these new details were of no help. As the family grappled with the loss of their beloved Barbara, they handled it in their own ways. While Louise, Barbara's mother, was vocal about her daughter's case, talking to reporters and working to bring her daughter justice, the pain was just too much for her father, Albert. He couldn't even stay in the same room if someone began to talk about her. On February 1st, just a few weeks after Barbara's death, another student was reported missing after she didn't show up to class. Luckily, she was located out of state soon after. Hers is a good example of just how on edge the campus was about the safety of their students, especially the young women. Time passed and the fear started to subside, but the desire to find the killer didn't. Weeks, months, years passed. By 1989, the only change in Barbara's case was that her father, Albert Tucker, passed away, never learning the identity of the man who killed his daughter. Six years later, Louise, the tenacious mother who continued to seek answers, also passed. She had been in frequent contact with the DA and police. She kept handwritten notes of her own contact with involved parties and attempts to solve the case. She never gave up. Neither did the Gresham Police Department. Even when this became the longest unsolved case in Gresham's history, the cold case unit continued to work every tip they received and reviewed evidence through the years. On and on time went until June of this year, 41 years after Barbara's murder. After having submitted DNA from the scene to Parabon Nanolabs, they finally got a hit. And it was a match for someone already on the judicial system's radar. His name was Robert Plimpton. <laughs> In 1997, Troutdale resident Robert Plimpton was arrested after a woman accused him of taking her to a secluded, wooded area where he attempted to rape and sodomize her. She was able to get away and press charges. I'm going to go ahead and assume he was not questioned in Barbara's murder, even though the circumstances were similar. That might be because, at the time of Barbara's murder, Robert was a 16-year-old attending my high school, Reynolds. Whoa. But in June of this year, with the DNA match and arrest warrant in hand, detectives initiated a traffic stop of Robert's vehicle. Once stopped, Robert was cordial and followed directions. Although he was underage all those years ago, it's been announced that Robert will be tried as an adult in the death of Barbara Tucker. At his first hearing, he pleaded not guilty. Now Barbara's family continues to wait, only this time it's to find out if he'll admit any guilt, take any responsibility show some remorse, or simply take a plea deal and quietly shuffle off to prison. 
While Barbara's case file sat gathering dust, another string of murders in Portland led to a serial killer possibly being connected to bodies found around MHCC. Jennifer Lynn Titcher was born August 13, 1971, in Dallas, Oregon. She lived a normal, happy life as a young teenager. Then, on July 3, 1987, 15-year-old Jennifer disappeared. Her parents searched desperately, but with no success. That was until the following summer, when a shin bone was discovered. On July 18, 1988, it was an MHCC biology student who found a bone near campus. A search was initiated using the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office explorers, who then found more and more remains throughout the shrub-covered area. Miraculously able to complete the skeleton, it was found that what had been discovered was indeed the remains of Jennifer Titcher, and she had been strangled. When it came to suspects, the only known information was that Jennifer had last been seen with a young woman named Gail Bennett. John Titcher, Jennifer's father, was certain his daughter's death was connected to a very similar case from around the time his daughter went missing, and this one I have a slight family connection to. On October 24, 1987, my cousin was on an elementary school field trip where they walked up and around the Mount Hood campus, making their way through the wooded area near what we call Baker Tree. It's a slightly wooded space near Beaver Creek at the south end of the campus. There are lines of trees that everyone has taken family photos at in the fall and a huge copper beech tree that was planted in 1885. That area has always been important to the Troutdale community. As my young cousin and his classmates made their way back to the school, they passed through the park-like stretch of grass on Troutdale Road and, being kids, all started to react to something. It was a smell a wretched smell that soon had everyone talking, yelling, and questioning where it was coming from. When the class arrived back at Sweetbriar Elementary, the teacher called the police to report the upsetting odor. There was a good reason for the teacher to be concerned. On August 3rd of 1987, 12-year-old Mindy Colleen Thomas went missing. She had told her mom she was going to a friend's house as she left her apartment in Gresham. Once again, she was last seen with 16-year-old Gail Bennett. From the moment 12-year-old Mindy went missing, everyone in the area joined in supporting the search. Every business had a poster in the window with Mindy's face on it. Her family and friends were desperate for answers. Those answers came when the search parties arrived at the site of the reported smell. Two months after her disappearance, the remains of Mindy were discovered. Mindy had lived in Dallas until 1986 when her mother moved to Gresham. She had just started her eighth grade year at Gordon Russell Junior High, and now she was gone. Here's where the family connection actually continues. There were no answers when it came to who killed Mindy or why. Parents in Gresham and Troutdale were hypervigilant. Had she been picked up by a stranger when she walked to her friends? Had she taken the city bus to her friend's house and someone maybe followed her? With fears running high, anything that seemed out of the ordinary was reported. On a night soon after the discovery of Mindy, my uncle, father to the cousin who was on the field trip, was traveling down Stark Street and ended up behind a TriMet bus, the 80. On the side of the road, he saw a young girl walking, not much older than Mindy, he figured. Then the bus pulled over, right where the girl was, and it wasn't a bus stop. As my uncle watched on, confused as to why the bus was stopped when there wasn't a stop, he watched the young girl. She was clearly saying no and kind of turning away. As the exchange went on, he understood that he was now insisting on giving her a ride. Eventually, the driver gave up, but my uncle didn't. As soon as he got home, he called the police and TriMet to report what he had seen. 
He followed up with his report, and he was told by investigators that they did find the driver and question him, and he claimed that with the murders happening to young girls in the area, he was concerned about her well-being. My uncle never really bought that, and I kind of question it too. If you're out on the night shift and you have no other passengers except a young girl, wouldn't, well, I was driving a large city bus, be the perfect alibi? Yeah, but I feel like most people... If, you're, if the whole town's hyper vigilant about it, right? I'd stop and offer her a ride as well if I drove a bus. Probably not my personal car. I mean, <laughs> possibly, but it was. I mean, the whole thing was that it just went on and on, that the girl was like walking away, mm. and it was very like, "Come on, come on, come on." So my yeah. uncle was like, "That's just as easily as what you could have done to Mindy." And like, "Oh, come on, it's dark out, or it's getting late, or it's cold, or whatever." So they, but it never went anywhere. The trail leading to the killer or killers responsible for the murders of Jennifer and Mindy soon went cold. In spring of 1991, with Jennifer, Mindy, and Barbara's killings still unsolved, police made their way down to California. There was someone they wanted to speak to. The new suspect was being questioned in regard to Mindy's death specifically. Harold Thomason lived in Stockton and had just been arrested and charged with planning to kidnap, rape, and murder an 8-year-old girl he had been stalking. (sighs) all for the purpose of making a snuff film. Ew. Luckily, he was caught before he actually hurt the child. When Terrell Thomas, Harold's brother, heard of his arrest, he put together the pieces. Shannon Garrett, Mindy's mother, and Terrell Thomason were old friends from Chemeketa Community College down in Salem, Oregon. Terrell couldn't say for sure, but there was a strong possibility that through their years of friendship, Harold had crossed paths with Shannon and therefore Mindy. But once police ran Harold's record, they found two things, that Mindy fit his M.O. and that he was a free man at the time of her death. Back in 1984, Harold had been charged with accosting a 12-year-old girl and had been convicted of sodomy. He was then paroled from the Oregon State Penitentiary on May 26, 1987, just a few months before the two girls went missing. Yeah, parole him. He seems like he's not a threat. And yes, he served a whopping less than three years for assaulting a child. Oh, my God. While all of that sounds like a slam dunk, there just wasn't enough evidence to prove Harold had anything to do with either case. And I can literally find no information about Harold. So there's no telling if he's alive, in prison, or if he went on to continue to commit crimes against young children, which, you know, he probably did, allegedly. Once again, there were no answers as to who was to blame for the murders, and everything surrounding the cases got quiet. Then a serial killer entered the picture, his M.O. looking disturbingly similar to how Jennifer and Mindy were murdered. Forest Park is located on the west side of downtown Portland, home to over 5,000 acres of lush forest, trails, activities like the 4T Trail and Witch's Castle, and so much wildlife. It's no surprise this urban park that is actually bigger than Central Park attracts visitors from all around the world every year. It also attracts those that have something to hide. On May 7, 1999, a couple had been walking their dog in Forest Park. Catching their eye, they inspected the pile of leaves and branches on the trail when they made a ghastly discovery. Covered with pieces of nature was the body of Leela Faye Moeller. It was apparent she had been strangled with her clothing and was sexually assaulted. Luckily for investigators, the culprit left their used condom mere feet from her body. 
Leela was only 28 years old. The single mother had been known to struggle her whole life with addiction issues, leading to sex work and relapses. At the time of her death, Leela had heroin in her system, a drug she had issues with and had sought help for. Due to her drug use and sex work, Leela struggled to maintain housing, and while she was in touch with her family, it was infrequent. So when she was killed around April 12th, there was no missing person report to connect to the discovery of her body a month later. However, when she hadn't returned to her housing for a week, word started to spread. By the second week, the tight community she was a part of was very worried for her. Leela had grown up in Eugene with her nine siblings on a farm. When she got older, her family moved to Idaho, where she went from farm life to cheerleading life, alternating between cheering and playing in basketball games. As a hobby, she loved to draw. With a family history ripe with addiction, mental health, and alcohol issues, Leela struggled to find safe footing and soon fell into the same pit as her mother and siblings. At just 13, she was drinking. At 16, she was using speedballs. At 18, she was still struggling but was now pregnant. When her son was two, she tried yet another rehab. Sadly, she was only able to maintain sobriety for a couple of years. Throughout the years, she would go through the cycle of using, working multiple jobs, then seeking help. From the start of her short life, she was dealt difficult cards. Sadly, all of this making her the perfect prey for a predator. The day after finding Leela, officers returned to the scene to continue processing it. That's when they made a shocking discovery. Another body. Only about 80 yards from Leela was the body of 26-year-old Stephanie Lynn Russell. She, too, had been strangled and had DNA, I'm assuming semen, on her thighs. Born in Little Rock, Arkansas on March 25, 1973, Stephanie and her family, including three siblings, moved to Tigard when she was young. After graduating from Tigard High, she moved to Phoenix for a while before coming back to Portland in 1994. She had two children, Jordan and Marilee. Just like Lena, Stephanie had her struggles with mental health, addiction, and housing. She was also a sex worker. It was believed that she had been killed within a few days of her body being recovered. After the discoveries were made, news not only spread via media, but word of mouth within the houseless and sex worker communities. Fears arose as it was realized there was someone hunting the vulnerable women on the street. Looking for help from those in the know, lead detective Dave Schlegel reached out to a friend of his who could vouch for his credibility. That friend was Shelley Harding. Detective Schlegel had helped Shelley back in 1991 when she was assaulted. Since her attack, she had become a heroin user who struggled to stay off the street, but she always maintained her relationship with Detective Dave. She was especially motivated to help because her dear friend Leela was one of the victims. In telling her story to Shattered on ID, Shelley shared that she and Leela would frequently end up in the same rehab or housing facilities. When Shelley was struggling, Leela would support her and help her to forget the stressful situation they were both living in. With a plan in place, Detective Dave and Shelley made their way to the streets and spoke with sex workers. Shelley only agreed to do so because Dave was the only person that spoke to her with empathy and understanding. He made her feel like a person, so she knew to believe him when he promised to not hold anything against the women they spoke to, meaning if they had drugs on them or outstanding warrants, he wouldn't pursue anything. He simply wanted to warn them and to find out if there were any Johns they had seen with Leela or Stephanie with regularity or if there was any John that had come around exhibiting odd behavior. Besides making sure the girls knew how to protect each other, nothing really came of the interactions. Then June 2nd, and another discovery. 
About a quarter mile from where Stephanie and Leela were found, hikers stumbled across the body of 17-year-old Alexandria Nicole Eisen. She, too, had been strangled and raped. Being a small, poem-writing, creative, funny, and outgoing person, Alexandria, or Alex, struggled to find friends in school. She was bullied so extremely, she started to skip school. Then to avoid it altogether, she began running away from home. Only a day or two at first, but as she got older, she began experimenting with drugs, her time away from home becoming longer and longer. Once Alex didn't call home for Mother's Day in May of that year, her mother Susan became even more worried than she usually was for her daughter. Susan was used to getting calls from her about once a month. While she wouldn't share where she was, she would check in and always ended the call with, I love you. Once Alex was older, she started to use heroin. When Susan confronted her about it, she pleaded, I just don't want to read about you in the newspaper. Once Susan saw the news about Leela and Stephanie, she filed a missing persons report with the police for Alex. It had been too long since she had made contact, and it was clear the streets were a deadly place to be. On June 2nd, the police came knocking to give the mother the worst news imaginable, that her daughter, who fit the victim profile of being a transient drug user with an arrest record and history of sex work, had been found dead. Susan, struggling to process the reality of a life without her child, asked the police for everything. She went through the records, reports, and photos. In the end, only feeling hate for whoever had done this to her baby. It wasn't until the memorial service that Susan saw and heard all of the love and support that had surrounded her daughter. Fellow street kids stepped up to share how much Alex meant to them, how much love she had for them, how much joy she brought to them. Three victims, same location, six weeks apart. The Portland police knew they had a serial killer on their hands, but all they knew was that their victims shared similar backgrounds and a witness saw a beat-up old van in the area. Detective Dave knew he had a huge hunt ahead of him. Using the only clues he had, he knew the search would need to start in the streets. It was assumed that the victims had been picked up in areas known for sex workers. Starting there, the newly formed task force in charge of finding the killer decided to put one of their own out as bait. A female officer was placed in a high-traffic area for Johns. There are a lot of sex workers and a lot of Johns in a lot of areas of the city. It seemed that getting a clue would be an impossibility, but they had to hope for the best. On the first night of the sting, the first car pulled up to the undercover officer. She didn't get in, and right when the driver pulled away, she flagged down her team. She felt the guy was off. So did Detective Dave, who was watching her from afar. So he and his partner followed the car around the corner. Catching up a block later, they found the car in an alley across the street, the driver staring at the undercover officer. There he sat for a few minutes. All of the officer's instinctive tingles were triggered. They sat and watched the man for a moment before driving past him. When Detective Dave looked through the driver's side window, he couldn't believe it. He knew the man in the car. He had arrested him years before. The man in the car was Todd Allen Reed. Detective Dave Schlegel knew him because he had put Todd away almost 10 years prior. It was a winter evening in 1992. A young woman, seven months pregnant, had just finished her shift at work and was walking home. Tired from work, exhausted by pregnancy, the woman didn't hesitate to accept a ride from the dorky-looking guy behind the wheel of the car that had pulled over. As they took off, they only made it a few blocks before everything changed. The man driving pulled out a knife and locked the doors. The energy in the car shifted from helping to rage as the man started to nervously threaten her. 
He became so focused on talking to her, he didn't realize the traffic had slowed down and he rear-ended the car ahead. Thinking she had been saved, the woman looked on as the two occupants of the other vehicle got out and the driver of her vehicle took off. She knew then that her life was in danger. She started to make a plan. First, memorize everything in the car. Garbage, items, the make, the model. Second, leave evidence. She quickly began to touch every surface she could, attempting to leave as many clear fingerprints as possible. Third, be nice. She realized the man was clearly in distress, so she started to ask, What's going on? I'm here to talk to you. You seem like a really nice guy. The comforting words didn't help, and soon they were away from the city and on a dirt road. Once the car came to a stop, the man put a belt around her neck before raping her several times and forcing her to perform oral sex on him. When he started to cry after the attack, she continued to comfort him. Oh. She promised, I won't tell. Just drop me off where you got me. I don't know anything about you. I don't have any way of finding you, so we can just separate. And that's exactly what happened. The woman was dropped off and immediately contacted police, and it was the fender bender that led them to an arrest. The two men who were hit thought quickly and saved the license plate number. They then filed a hit-and-run report. When Detective Dave ran the reports against the info he had from the woman, it led him to a suspect. When the survivor's fingerprints were found in the car, an arrest was made. The rapist-slash-attempted murderer? Todd Allen Reed. The victim who survived the encounter? Shelly Harding. You're hearing that right. The man watching the undercover cop posing as a sex worker was spotted by the same detective who had arrested him nearly a decade before for attacking the woman that was now helping police track down the killer of her friend. Wow. Also, that's a brave bunch of people who thought quickly. Uh, Really. I mean, yeah, get the license plate and put the fingerprints and they were all unknowingly working together to catch him. Oddly enough, I do that with my fingerprints too, and I do it with sunroofs. Oh, that's I smart. I put them back and put my fingerprints Oh, that's there smart. Because I'm paranoid. You're frequently in strangers' cars? Or... I mean, in my own car too. Who knows? <laughs> your car is just filthy with <laughs> fingerprints. Can't even see out the side windows. Like, ma'am, we know this is your car. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to be that worried. Todd was arrested and took a plea deal for... You're going to love this, Emily. No, no. Attempted rape. What? How you can take a lesser plea that basically eradicates the act you're going to jail for I, is beyond me. I don't understand. With law. all of, Law. With all of that, he was sentenced to 12 years. Shelley struggled greatly after walking away from the events of that night. She turned to drugs to numb the pain and fear, to quell the nightmares and fear of the dark. The drugs affected her parenting of the child she had fought so hard to protect, and she eventually lost custody. Feeling like, oh, you think I'm a bad mom? I'll show you how bad of a mom I can be. Shelley lost all hope and fell into an even darker spiral. More drugs, a loss of her home, sex work. Her encounter with Todd Allen Reed had really destroyed her life, and her victimization continued. Just a few years after her attack, Shelley was at a restaurant. When she looked up, she saw the man that had nearly killed her. Without hesitation, she stood up and followed him out the door, yelling, You tried to kill me. You tried to kill me. And that was how she learned her rapist had been let out of prison after serving, drumroll please, two and a half years of his 12-year sentence. Can you imagine 
the audacity of not getting a phone call to be told that the person who victimized you was getting out that early. Yeah. Well, luckily now they have those systems in place. There are several online organizations and um, I believe on county levels too that you can sign up for so you can that get is true, updates. But you're but still putting it on the victim yeah. to have to go sign up for that. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be how it works. Yeah, it should be an automatic, okay, you're in the system and we'll keep you posted when he has a parole meeting, how it goes. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, we saw that with that um, girl in the box case. Mm-hmm. She constantly has to be aware yeah. of that stuff. She's going to the gov- the, the governor. Yeah. She's the one starting all Almost these like signatures. it's a privacy thing. Like, well, it's private when they get out of prison and it's private where they end up. And it's like, no. I don't want to they... see them when I'm eating my dinner. Yeah. Horrible. I, How traumatizing fair, for her. I can't even imagine. The, we've all had that feeling when you're somewhere and you see an ex and you get that roll in your tummy. Now multiply that by someone that tried to kill you, by someone that raped you over and over, that someone that made you feel you were going to lose your life and your baby and just walking by free. Not to mention you've struggled your whole life mm. or after that yeah. and you're seeing him. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Ugh. Passing the car on the night of the undercover operation, Detective Dave was equally shocked to see the man he thought would be away for another five years. In fact, it wasn't until the interview on Shattered that he learned just how little of the sentence Todd had served. And his back of his head's to me, and as we drove past, I looked inside, and there was Todd Reed. I mean, it was just a like a bell going off, a siren going off. Circumstantially, it's it's pretty uh, cosmic, coincidental moment. I was hoping for a, yeah, a little longer sentence on the rape. Uh, he actually ended up being sentenced to 12 years and served three. Don't tell me that. your mind when you see Todd after all these years? Both me, I get angry. Yeah, I spent my whole life putting these people away. How hard they work to get the right evidence, talk to the witnesses, just to see it get thrown in the shitter like that. People make deals for whoever, and yeah. Just so someone can have a W on their docket. (laughs) Right. I want to be governor. Searching Todd's car that night, police found an open but unused condom, a strap of some sort, and a book about a murderer called The Killing Gift. (sighs) With this interaction, Todd Allen Reed became the prime suspect for who had now been dubbed the Forest Park Strangler. Using DNA from the crime scene against that which they had collected after the rape of Shelley, investigators ran it through their system. But this was 1999. Getting lab results took much longer than today. So for 11 days, officers kept an eye on Todd. That was until they got the news. They had a match. Todd Allen Reed was indeed responsible for killing the two women and teenager that had been found in Forest Park. In addition to the DNA evidence, there had also been a security guard who, just a few days before her body had been found, came across Stephanie's ID on a street in Portland. That street was mere blocks from Todd's house. At least he wasn't very smart. That he made it easy. Yeah. Because, you know, nowadays it's rare that you see DNA left behind like that. Right. Yeah. 
And that the officers were like, we might need this someday. Maybe technology will catch up to this. Let's save it. Yeah, I almost wish the public didn't know about these things. I know, right? <laughs> officers made their way to Renella's Produce off Grand, where Todd was working the night shift. In front of everyone, police put the cuffs on him without incident, save for the shock of his friends, family, and co-workers that couldn't believe this kind, soft-spoken friend of theirs could be responsible for such unfathomable terror. Do you think that's true? Do you that think people that get people, shocked? people were really like, oh, he's so sweet and kind? Or do you think that's just the bullshit we spend to like... to make ourselves feel better about not noticing it? Yeah, it might be that because, I mean, you look at a picture and he's kind of... Uh, classically uh, cartoonishly creepy looking he's got the blonde bowl cut he's got the big glasses mustache on and off you know so he kind of has that Mm -hmm. 80s creeper look um yeah i'm not sure what that is and i don't know with the exception of the people that i am absolutely closest to i don't know that i would ever feel comfortable going oh i just oh i can't even believe it but you're right. It might just be oh, the Our person, coping mechanism. Yeah, the person I worked next to every day for four years could have done this, or yeah, because you expect those people to like sniff your hair when you're not looking, right. and you like <laughs> you catch it or something. Yeah. Like they're they're off. Yeah. So it makes you wonder: Did he really hide it that well, and he just raged out after work, or is that human nature to kind of cover up what you what wasn't obvious? Or to you? also looking at his job, he was like a produce. You know, he would do the loading and unloading, like from deliveries and stuff. And he's working the night shift. This is nothing about people that have that job, but jobs like that that aren't as desired because of the, you know, the well, shift he, or the he gets pay. To be alone too. It's like you tend to have people that have more criminal backgrounds and have more. You know, mm. it's like you know what I mean. Working that kind of job, right? And so it's like maybe that was just part of it. Is other people had their own backgrounds and old history that it was like, well, we don't want to say he's a creep sure because we don't want someone thinking that of us when we're just trying to earn a living and and i always wonder that when it's like oh he was just like any other guy yeah how Went much how much they really were like that right because i feel like we've both known people through the years that we'd be like yep he'd be the yeah, one that sounds about right <laughs> <laughs> they come talk to us you're like oh yeah we saw that coming years ago <laughs> terrible <laughs> so who was todd allen reed Todd Allen Reed was born in Portland in 1967. Struggling through his youth, he was caught stealing at 14 and sent to a residential facility for troubled teens. At 19 years old, he met a 15-year-old girl and they began dating. They soon moved in with each other in Gresham. But being so young, the couple struggled to make ends meet, leading to them being houseless, couch surfing at friends' places, stealing from stores, and burglarizing homes. In 1987, Todd was caught breaking into a home and charged. I don't know how much time he did, but by the following year, he was marrying his now 17-year-old girlfriend. To prove he had changed his ways, Todd asked the judge that had sentenced him for burglary to marry him and his lady. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it was a whole, like, look, I'm I'm making something of myself as if getting married cancels out criminal acts i feel like we're reliving another episode didn't we talk about a very similar yeah there situation was somebody where somebody wanted to prove uh by marrying yeah yeah oh and about that girlfriend who's now his wife her name was gail bennett the last person seen with both jennifer titcher and mindy thomas the girls found in the 80s strangled and abandoned in wooded areas no 
During the time of those murders, Todd worked at a Sizzler's before shifting to um, a... I'm sorry, it's yes. Sizzler. There's no S. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, queen it's of like, the fan club. It's like when people say Nordstrom's. It's actually just Nordstrom or Fred Meyer. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> During the time of those murders, Todd worked at a Sizzler before shifting to a grocery store produce department, which would eventually lead to the job at Ranella's. The young couple had two sons. Through all of this, when Todd had free time, he would write poetry that he would read at local cafes. When his job changed to the overnight shift, it changed the marriage. He was disengaged with the kids and Gail. He started hiding pornography and calls to sex lines. But Gail stood by her man, staying married through the attack on Shelley, the subsequent jail time, and only ending the marriage in 1997. On July 20, 1999, Todd Allen Reed entered the court for his arraignment. He was charged with three counts of aggravated murder for the deaths of Leela Moeller, Stephanie Russell, and Alexandria Eisen. Friends and family of the victims filled the courtroom to watch over the three-minute proceeding. Those loved ones wouldn't get answers or closure until February of 2001, when after taking another plea deal to avoid the death penalty, Todd Allen Reed pleaded guilty to the murders and was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. His defense had been that he had never been to Forest Park, but he might have had sex with Leela and Stephanie in the days leading up to their deaths. Very reminiscent of the Canadian case that we had where we talked to the defense lawyer and she said that the sex had been consensual. Oh, right. You know, I kind of got those same vibes of that is a good argument. And that's another part of, I think, why people target sex workers is mm -hmm. you can easily say, oh, and then they're telling yeah, partial, yesterday. partial truths and explaining why their their DNA is present. Mm hmm. Given he lived in the area, had a criminal background, and was actively breaking the law at the time, not to mention his girlfriend was the last person seen with the two victims in the Mount Hood Community College vicinity, it was assumed he was also responsible for the deaths of Jennifer and Mindy. But he did not confess to them, and there has not been enough evidence for charges or proof for conviction. So the murders of 12-year-old Mindy and 15-year-old Jennifer have yet to be solved, Although most people connected, police and family alike, have come to the conclusion that the killer is behind bars. So what's the theory then? Is Are they thinking Gail was in on it? That perhaps she, either she was friends or because she was so much younger, you know, he's oh. 19 and she's only 15, that she could easily become friends with a 12-year-old and easily become friends with a 15-year-old. So, so that she, but was she a willing participant in helping him do this? That's what's unknown. Ugh. And I didn't find anything on her, so I don't know. I'm assuming she was questioned. I hope right. she was questioned. But again, there just might not be oh, enough. Horrible. Oh, oh! I someone saw me. Oh, but we were just walking, and then I went and got on the bus. Like, who knows? It but could it's have been like anything. you could come at it at two angles. Like, she knew them, and so he targeted them. Right. Or she helped him knowingly or unknowingly Yeah. Um, target them. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's very scary. And as we've seen so many times with stories like these, the wife or the girlfriend or the partner, whoever, is usually receiving the brunt of their right. anger and abuse and control. So especially at with an age difference and at 15, you're breaking the law pretty seriously with this adult man. It's yeah. it's easy to see who knows if he was threatening her or well either way whether physical or not he was in a position of power totally. in the relationship yeah their dynamic was way off so we always see this history of being abusive and controlling so it's very possible that that was it so maybe she was an unwilling participant right. 
forced forced to lure the girls, you know. Ugh, sad. In addition to the three girls in Forest Park and the two at MHCC, there is also a strong suspicion Todd is responsible for the disappearance and assumed homicide of 19-year-old Ametha Sanyas. That's because she fit the criteria. She was a young sex worker and she went missing around the same time as the other victims. She has not been seen or heard from since July of 1999. Some places aren't cursed, they just attract the wrong people. Wooded, secluded areas hide such ugliness while being in plain sight. Here we are, 41 years after all of these events first transpired. Barbara's killer has been caught and will probably be going away for a very long time. Jennifer and Mindy's families are still seeking justice, but it seems the only person with the answers will die behind bars before giving the families closure. As for Susan, Alex's mother, she's just glad Todd is behind bars so he can't hurt anyone else. But the pain remains, not only surrounding the loss of her daughter, but the ripple effect it has had on her other children. Her youngest started having panic attacks at 11 years old, another fell into a deep depression, while her other son followed in his sister's steps and struggled with addiction. The victimization seems to be never-ending. For Shelley, Todd took so much of her life, and Detective Dave was able to help her get it back. She didn't start out as the perfect victim for Todd, but after what he did to her, it's almost unbelievable that she then became someone that would have been an ideal victim for him. A drug user, a sex worker, a houseless person. And because she fell into that world, she met Leela, who she loved, then lost. Feeling even more despair, it was her desire to fight against the man who had hurt so many that actually cleaned her up. Detective Dave asked her to testify at court, but said she'd have to be clean to be credible. Doing it for herself and for Leela, she got clean and made her statement. And she stayed clean, getting married at a wedding which was attended by Detective Dave. She still hurts, though. She's still afraid of the dark. She knows the funny, outgoing, strong version of herself that she was from before Todd died that day. And she's had to fight like hell to get all of herself back from him. The same monster that broke her gave her the inspiration to find the strength within herself to put the pieces back together. Shelley still has hard days, but on those days she remembers she's living a day that Leela didn't get to have, so she better make the best of it. I know it's not unheard of, but it's interesting to go from one type of victim, like a child, Mm -hmm. prepubescent, pubescent child, to adult women Mm -hmm. who are drug addicted and sex workers or variety of such. Interesting, right? What I think with that is, well, I think it's twofold. I think he he was also really young, so it's kind of like you covet he what grew you know up with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like, oh, what's around me, young people? So that might have been an accessibility thing, since he was, you know, and it's still 19, an accessibility 20, thing. Absolutely, so that's the common. And also, he might have changed because you know, in, in talking to my mom, she was the one that had reminded me about all the stuff with my cousin, right? And she said, you know, the energy surrounding this. She was like, every store, it's all anyone talked about. Everybody had a poster up. It was like all consuming. Right. And so if if he's the one that did that, he might have realized, whoa, that was that was too too much attention. Yeah. Cause and, people always care about kids. They're not right. gonna care about these women who are, you know, using drugs. Exactly. It's basically why we see so many serial killers targeting them. Yeah, so so if he's the one that, that did that to Jennifer and Mindy, which I strongly suspect that he did, I think he just 
learned that there was too much heat. Right. And so it's like, okay, look at what all the other serial killers do. Oh, prostitutes. No one cares about them. Right. So. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Because since he's not convicted of those murders. Yes. I also (laughs) assume that he did them. It's just too coincidental. Yeah. The area and the time and the the method. All of it. Um, Okay. So my talking points. One. Can we please stop calling teenagers women? The Like everything was saying three women found, three women found. It, and she is hard. a 17-year-old child. While she I is definitely agree school. with you. I agree with you. We, as a country, we make it very clear that you become an adult at 18, right? Right. And so it's unfair to, to not have it that way when you're in the media talking about their death or them being raped. Yeah. Uh, I definitely agree. And it is it's problematic and it's something I even struggle with too when writing. I have to remind myself right. like, that that is not because we kind of we place loss of innocence and going, oh, she does drugs and has sex. She's not a child. Well, and a lot of people assume a child becomes a woman when they get their period, which yeah. can happen at like 10. Yeah. For some kids. And so we I think we need to go by the legal definition of when someone is a woman, which is kind of disappointing that the media doesn't already do that. Yeah, and you would think that they would because, I mean, frankly, it's more sensational. If you said two women and a child discovered in the park, potentially from a serial killer, more people would care. But, oh, she was was just a hooker. Well, then it makes you think, did they originally do that? And somebody above them, a male usually in media, says you can't write that. What a great transition to my next point, which was how we're working on our verbiage and how we should also be holding those people accountable because when this happened it was young father of two who works multiple jobs to provide for them caught killing prostitutes so they were just lumped they were lumped together in their job why don't we do that for anyone else like a fisherman found dead an accountant it's never nobody else's that's fucked up you know their job Oh, yeah. When, you know, if banker, I get murdered. Three bankers found, and it wouldn't be. It'd be three women, unless they're prostitutes. Marketing product person slash yeah. podcaster gets murdered. Yeah, so it's like, one, we're not using prostitutes or hookers or any of that. Number two, it should be who they are and not this. Like, right away, Him. you're already yeah, saying, gross. this poor man. That's biasing. That's so biasing people mm-hmm. that, oh, he's a, a father working yeah. art. It's probably a misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, I really love this. I'd never seen this show Shattered. It's on ID Discovery I've and heard it's of on it. demand. They just did such a nice job. It was all about Shelly, the survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so interesting because what I already had, I had written this out and it was, you know, one thing led to another thing led to another thing. And literally reading about him, it was he had a record from 1991 from an assault on a woman. That's all I could find or an assault or on a pregnant woman. And literally on that show, it's the first time she's telling her story. And wow. it is so much more than just pregnant woman was attacked and he took a plea deal. It is so much more. And they barely touch on him. You know, I I wanted to share his background to kind of paint the story of, you know, how someone gets to that point. As we do. Yeah. And, and so I wanted that info. But I really appreciated that they didn't. They were just like, and then they caught this guy. Because it's like he's all over the place. You really want to yeah. know about a serial killer? I'm sure you can find yeah. out. What we want to know about are these victims that kind of get pushed under the rug or briefly mentioned in a sentence where you're left wondering, like, what the heck happened there? Like you were talking in your opening um, few pages about a crime and I found myself going, I need to know about that crime. I want to hear more about that one. 
So I think, and that's what the true crime community is into mm -hmm. ourselves and our listeners is, yeah, we want to understand the murderer because it's true crime and we are all interested in yeah. that. And like, how did that person become that person? But what about those forgotten people? Mm -hmm. I think that that's really interesting. So I'm glad that that show does Yeah, it's does really, that. it was on demand. So if anyone has cable, I think it's on demand. I think it's on YouTube as okay. well. So it, it and it's season one, episode four, I believe, The Woods. Um, and it was just really sweet, you know, and Shelly's talking about her work with Detective, I call him Detective Dave because I didn't want to say Schlegel over and over. You did a really good job with it. I did not trust it. myself. You didn't mess it up once. <laughs> I was and waiting I, for it. First time I heard it, I go, I would have messed it up. <laughs> um, but she says, and just she just frankly says, he was the person that didn't make me feel like a piece of gum on someone's shoe. Right. Because she was like, that's what I always felt like people would look at and talk to. And it's like. Yeah, so if we could build that community where we have either trained officers or trained teams that work with these communities and say, I don't care about the drugs. I don't care that you're working, mm -hmm. selling sex. I don't care about, and like, we, I'm not interested in those things. We see it, but not enough. I, it did come up in my case mm -hmm. um, when I talked about Gary Ridgway yeah. and how there was an officer who was really keen on that, and it worked for him. Yeah, and it's like, look how much further you get, mm -hmm. because those other things, who cares if... Like <laughs> when it comes to breaking the law, who cares if someone has some drugs on them or is like, well, they don't seem sex? to care when they're paroling early. Do right. They? So and then you turn around and you let this guy out after three years. Yeah. Bullshit. I, you know, I, what? and that's another great transition. The <laughs> failures here, the fail for Barbara, people failing to stop the failure of letting him out early. Who, yeah. who looked at that case or maybe they didn't get to look at the report and they just saw attempted rape probably like they don't see the details that went in yeah oh he tried to do it oh he won't that's do that actually again. that brings up a very good question for me when they are paroling what do they have access to yeah are I, they I think just they seeing have the, the files i think they have the file hmm. but i don't know if they have a hundred things to do in a day are they really sitting and yeah. reading and going oh he took a plea but really what he did was horrific and she was able to save her own life yeah Oh, but dismissing her on the road like that is yeah, unfathomable. I feel like I get really nosy when I see the smallest things like somebody pulling someone's arm too hard. I'm like, I'm going to follow them for a couple blocks. I and looped see what's the other up. day because someone was sitting at a bus stop on like uh, a walker, one of those walkers that you can outsize the little chair. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, really hot day and they were kind of slumped weird. And so I looped around just to be like, you good? You know, like, yeah how people and that's so is that a like, fundamental so amazing, difference but just of our, like how... but no but no that's don't dismiss it because so too many times we just assume that's how people are right and you realize no right people are either too wound up in their own goings-ons or they're or just... just so scared and it's like what's the worst that's going to happen okay let's say that was a college prank you pull into the college parking Laugh lot. Laugh it off and go on yeah. with your life. You pull into the parking lot right there and you pull over and you go, hey, guys, what's going on? And she screams, help, help, he's trying to kill me and runs for your car. And you let her in the car and you drive off really fast. You save someone's and life. And now you have to be a witness in a trial, but <laughs> besides the point. But it's also like, okay, let's say it was a prank. And they go, oh, sorry, it was just a prank. And you go, hey, don't do that. People might think it's like a really serious thing. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, what, what is the holdup? from i feel like it's a mixture i feel like some people are probably scared and yeah. they probably went home and called maybe called police or i don't know right yeah i don't know it's hard to know how you react until you're in that spot but it's shocking that not one person stopped and it's so different for me being outside i 
I can kind of understand when, like, on I Survived, people always go, and then I ran to the first door and I banged on it and yeah, they wouldn't let me scary, in. Yeah. It's like, yeah, because I don't know. Are you doing this just to get into my house? Is the person right behind you well, and now they're going to break against in? it. Like, don't get out of your car if you see someone lying in the road. Yeah. So you call police. But it's just like, but if you're outside. And you're in your car, so you can leave. You can get away if the yeah, guy's. It's very disappointing. I'm disappointed. Anybody listening who may have been driving down that road, I'm a little bit disappointed in you. Yeah, like, you let's hear learn that. from this. And then those of you who 60, probably would have stopped, like sixty something, seventy something year old podcast listeners, <laughs> we've from got Gresham. a few. We've got a few. Uh, I don't think that I. I think they would stop though. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, that's really hard to hear. Yeah, that, that for she me could have been the saved. visual of her being just bloody that's a and horror movie and being out in the street and just like crawling and waving and some dude just grabbing her arms and dragging her and cars just going but you'd be like and we've talked about this before how and what kind of prank would that be like get yeah gross yeah but it's like we've talked about that now how with how things are and how our culture is right now especially in america how some of the biggest stressors i guess for me is just realizing how much we are alone how much people aren't willing to do things for others yeah. to help others you know why we have to call fire if something's happening to us you know so it's just that idea of i'm on a major road cars are passing fear, i'm waving them fear down is a powerful emotion that i yeah. think a lot of people think they'll react one way and they don't too though so yeah. as much as i say i'm disappointed uh, there's part of me that's like it's probably natural yeah to want to avoid getting involved in that situation but then again, I'm sure you think about it the rest of your life yeah. when you find out that there was a, gr a girl murdered and you drove by. Could you, yeah. Could you imagine reading the paper the next day and going, oh, my God, I saw her. I, I mean, we see t a lot of television shows where that spirals into long term grief. Yeah. Regret. Guilt. Self-hate, uh, which you self-medicate. Mm -hmm. So, um I yeah, mean, unfortunately, I, that, that happens. And I think that was what really struck me, too, with this case was once I had that connection, because I just thought it was Mindy, and it's similar to the Forest Park, so I'll talk about Forest Park, but then when it was Shelly wrapped in and all of this other stuff, and it was just like, look at all of the damage. Let's say for a moment, hypothetically, he's responsible for the death of Jenny and Mindy. Mm -hmm. The ripple effect of those losses and the the three at Forest Park and Stephanie... Nope. And Shelly and the detective, um, Detective Dave is also interviewed on that mm -hmm. show. And he's old school, but in the best way. He's like, I wish all the detectives were like that. But you can see the weight that he carries. And he's like, I saw things I don't want to see anymore. Oh, yeah, so there's a retire. price you pay to be good at that job. Yeah, but you could just see he cared about Shelly. He cared about. And it's like, that's what we're talking about. That's the reform is caring, you know. And so to just see the pain in his eyes that Shelly lost her child that she had fought to to protect, mm -hmm. you know, just so many things that were lost. And it's just, and and it's all right here. I mean, it's where we met. It's a literal stone's throw from my I house. Know. And it's just, all of that is concentrated right there. It's just, a, it was a lot, yeah. <laughs> well, those parking lots are Pretty creepy at night. Did you know I had a little stalker situation in that oh, at Mount back Martin? parking lot? The one uh, oh, over far, by the theater? Uh, pa past the theater. Okay, over so by the like very the very far end of campus. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. South. Yeah. The south end. Yeah, there was an older gentleman who would 
follow, like, watch me go in. He'd always be there when I left. He would call my house. And finally, I had a friend uh, get on the phone and tell him I was underage. And then he stopped following me. Ugh. Yeah. It was gross. And that's unfortunate because I went there for three years to be in that jazz program. Yeah. Just like... You can't interrupt this, sir. I'm. A, I have a trajectory yeah. here. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. I that's mean, that's scary. the thing. It's huge. It's, and it's it, sprawling, and there is a lot of plant life around. Like yeah. while it is kind of in the middle of a city, you there are trails. You can easily be hidden off to the side there. Oh yeah, you go on a trail, and then you can go down into a totally separate wooded area mm-hmm. that's not even part of the campus. Yeah. You can drive by the campus and not know it's there. If you well, don't catch the sign, you wouldn't see. It's not, you know, yeah, it's street away. facing like a big school. It's kind of back We did away. A, an annual jazz festival there. And my second and third year, I was like in charge of it with another student. And one of the jobs I did my third year was you have to sleep overnight with the equipment in the gym, which is on that far south end. Oh, yeah. Um, very secluded from the rest mm-hmm. of the school. And he was really the director was very concerned about me being female being in there. So he said, yeah, as long as you have like a male there with you, which is kind of funny. Yeah. (laughs) um, So the three of us stayed the night there and had a lot of fun. But it was spooky. Like it it is spooky campus. And had I known that those murders took place, I may not have volunteered for that overnight. Yeah. Well, 30,000 people. I mean, that's Troutdale, which is where it's located. Well, it kind of straddles the border of Troutdale and Gresham. Troutdale, we only have like 16,000 residents. Right. You know, so it's like two Troutdales in one campus. Yeah. And it is a good community college. Like there's a re- I went there specifically for the music program. I, I could have gone to another school, but I really wanted to be in that program. Yeah. And it really did save money. It's a good program. Some, oh, yeah. Some of the greatest teachers I've ever had. I were had passionate. so much fun there. Yeah. It was I a learned, great school. I, some of my best writing like really learning about writing, I did there. Yeah. And like here I am now writing for a living and, and writing all day every day. And yeah. I really do credit my classes there. For, yeah, they were great. You know, I got into me. anthropology because of the Corey Pressman. Shout out. He was the <laughs> anthropology teacher and he had a great pair of corduroys and he was super funny oh, and he great. got me into it. Yeah. So besides all the doom and gloom, it is a gorgeous campus. Just happens to be with lots of security nowadays yes there's constantly sending your kids morning noon and night anytime i pass there's the little campus guy zipping around yeah it was a very good case i think i've heard bits and pieces of it i i never heard the whole thing put together like that i uh know he's been on our list for a while as a, a highly requested case i didn't realize the breadth of where this would lead Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and be sure to join us in two weeks where Emily will be hosting. I am, and I'm really excited about this one. It started off as just a small case that we wanted to cover on our coin segment, a missing person by the name of Graciela Garcia, and I'm actually going to be speaking with some of her family members to learn more about the case. Oh, that'll be very interesting. It is. It will be good to get their perspective because there's a lot of rumors going on about the case, and I'm not sure where this is going to end up. I might incorporate another case as well. Oh, interesting. But uh, I'm very excited to just talk to some family again. I know we've had good experiences with that in the past and in keeping someone's name out there. That'll be great. And if you can't wait that long, you can always join our Patreon to get many episodes every other week. We'll see you next time.
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or as I thought, one wing right. dove. Yeah. Just I think like everyone a did. One wing dove <laughs> flying in a circle. <laughs> and he goes, "Oh wait, what is it?" And we explain. He goes, "That's not what I heard. I thought it was I got back problems." <laughs> <laughs> too late to save a night that and then my friend megan who thought uh kryptonite was crib tonight <laughs> like you can't come to my crib tonight i'm kidding it's a little joke shut your pie hole <laughs> great i gotta listen to you for an hour and a half oh and also get ready to throw in some little scatting shoobity boobop oh, okay about- scooby dooby dooby doobop yeah i'm ready <laughs> get me out of here. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 